The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone. This episode of Origins is presented by MX Gold. The new American Express Business Gold Card makes earning rewards easy. Business Gold Card members automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where they spend the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners tools and flexibility they need to successfully run and grow their business. For full benefits and terms, visit mx.co business. If you get to be on TV and you get to be on HBO, then you better be a thoroughbred. You better cross that finish line bloody. Like you can't give up. You don't turn your back. You don't give up on details. You never compromise. You fight for the rain. You offer to pay for it yourself if you have to. No detail is too small. Nothing should be ignored. Everything matters. Everything matters. And that's how you make really good television. That's when you get people watching an episode over and over during the initial stages of the show, did you used to think about how much of you is Miranda? Yes, I thought that I had very little in common with her. I felt like, you know, we both lead with our brain. And apart from that, there was almost nothing. She was single, I was not. I was a mother, she was not. We're both career people, but her kind of driven ambition was not something that I had. She was incredibly confrontational. I was incredibly conciliatory. But I think what happened over the course of the six years was they started including more and more of me in her. And I think she had an effect on me. The whole, you know, Mr. Big thing has got real legs to it, (laughs) for better or worse. I've stopped even thinking that I'm going to outrun it and replace it with another role because No matter what I do, and I've done quite a bit, it never seems to top that particular perception of that character, especially for middle-aged women or older women. When my Mr. Big broke up with me, I realized, you know what? I don't want to be with Mr. Big. I want to be Mr. Big. And that's a defining moment in a woman's life. What we also started to notice is in terms of the men we were dating, they sort of fell into two camps, which was, the person who was deeply paranoid that we would start using our time with them (laughs) as story and were very uncomfortable. And then the other version, which was even sort of weirder, which was, are you going to use this? Are you going to use this? This is funny. Are you going to use this? Which is why I called the show No Sex in the City, because both versions are not so appealing. Like, it wasn't a man-bashing show. It was a relationship-bashing show. And all the sex was there for comedy. It's like, people used to say to me, isn't it pornographic? I was like, 
I don't think you masturbate to this show. It's the opposite. I think your dick goes in watching this show. It's like, oh, it's all so scary to be naked in front of people and they don't love you. And how do you get out of the room if it's bad sex? If you hadn't gone into acting, what do you think you would have done? I don't think I would be alive. Really? Yeah, yeah, I'm an addict. I'm a recovering alcoholic. If I hadn't found acting, acting is the only thing that made me want to ever get sober. I didn't have anything that was that important to me other than trying to dull my senses or whatever. So I don't, I don't, I, I didn't think I would live to be 30. I started drinking very young and luckily I quit very young before any success happened. Thank goodness. I'm very lucky in that way. And then because my love for acting was like so big at that point when I was young, I had a, something that was more important to me than just drinking. Can it really be true that you've never been dumped via post-it note? That you've never had to conduct a rabbit intervention on behalf of a good friend? That you've never regarded cow milking as foreplay? For you, that is, not the cow. No, we're not strafing Neverland. Welcome instead to Origins Chapter 5, Sex in the City, Present at Creation. A modern odyssey of four women seeking, finding, losing, and rediscovering all kinds of things in mad, madcap Manhattan. Along the way, brash and brazen Sex in the City helped revolutionize what could be said and done on television, and even more significantly, how that could be accomplished by four very distinct women. At last, women said, a show about how we talk when we're together. At last, men said, a chance to enter the secret world of women and hear what they really think about themselves and about us. Now we're getting someplace. Long gone are those scenes of sitcom mom burning the roast even as sitcom dad's boss was on his way over for dinner. It was June 6, 1998, when Sex and the City premiered, just 23 days after the final episode of Seinfeld. That show, which celebrated its own vacuity and made itself part of the joke with the label A Show About Nothing, gave way to a show about everything. People on Sex and the City were raw, dimensional, valuable, and reminded us that they had genitalia, even when they didn't wave them in our faces. The show turned tables that TV hadn't previously turned and reinvented and reimagined our eternal search for lust as well as love, though not necessarily always in that order. Sex and the City predated The Sopranos and Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO, and while there were other shows before it, Sex and the City was the show that planted the hit series flag on planet HBO. Sex and the City aired from 1998 to 2004, 94 episodes in all, garnering 54 Emmy nominations and 7 wins. A prequel, The Carrie Diaries, ran on the CW network from 2013 to 2014. The original series also spawned two theatrical releases, Sex and the City, opening in 2008 to great acclaim and boffo box office, and two years later, Sex and the City 2, opening to great, well, ridicule, but still great box office results. Yet a third movie fell apart during a messy gestation period starting in 2016. Long before Netflix and binging were all the rage, many an adult viewer planned Sunday evenings around HBO's Sex and the City. Nowadays, you can see and hear practically everything from a television set. But there are still scenes and sights and themes and memes in Sex and the City that succeeded at commanding attention when they pop up because of the candor of the characters and a boldly unique fusion of comic and dramatic elements. Thus, it is proved, or strongly supported, that a show deemed revolutionary upon its debut doesn't have to keep smashing pumpkins or toppling windmills to remain relevant or talked about. 
Many an episode of Sex and the City has stood up to repeated viewings by its legions and legions of fans. And the show itself has been analyzed, psychoanalyzed, dissected, and trisected nearly to pieces by those who love it, and even by those who don't. So why, one might ask, are we here at Arjun's about to launch into another in-depth analysis of this racy, zippy, and witty HBO comedy? I'll tell you why. The medium is a large part of the message, and Sex and the City, it turns out, is a compelling vehicle for a podcast. No matter what you've read or seen on a talk show interview, listening to those who made this show happen, not just their voices, but their rhythms and inflections, makes for, we hope, a singular experience. Contemplating a show as resolutely original as Sex and the City, buoyant and blithe, episode upon episode, requires a bunch of smart people along the way. We are lucky to have many of them with us. Notable among them, Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, Kristen Davis, Chris Noth, Willie Garson, show creator Darren Starr, showrunner Michael Patrick King, and more. The only person who declined our invite was actress Kim Cattrall, who, through a representative, told us that she's already said everything she wants to say about Sex and the City. Life, love, laughter, and tears in the Big Apple. What a concept. Happy 20th anniversary, Sex and the City. Let's do this. Candace Bushnell wasn't so much making a living as eking out an existence, getting by in the proverbial economy plan in a friend's 10-story apartment on 79th Street in Manhattan. But life can change with the ringing of a telephone, and hers did. Peter Kaplan, editor of The Observer, was calling to ask if Bushnell would like to try turning her dishy, sassy reports on wham-glam New York nightlife into a regular column at $1,000 per pop. Soon, Bushnell was at a desk by a window in that friend's place, smoking up a storm and typing on a primitive Dell laptop, Sex in the City. That title, a nod to Helen Gurley Brown's seminal 1962 bestseller, Sex and the Single Girl. From the beginning, her nightlife pieces had a keen following. Give the people what they want, the adage goes, and what they turned out to want was themselves. Bushnell's classy gossip was gobbled up by an in-crowd who loved trying to guess real names behind all the pseudonyms. Bushnell discovered a real gift for getting subjects to open up, wide, about their private lives and loves. And when the column was adapted into a book, ever-nosy Hollywood perked up and peeked in. Darren Starr, whom Bushnell met when profiling him for Vogue, hailed her as a 90s Dorothy Parker and tagged along on Bushnell's jaunts into the Bowery Bar and other fashionably seedy downtown dives. The working friendship grew, and Bushnell, wisely as it turned out, decided to trust Starr to adapt Sex in the City. The timing was exquisite. American television was going through an arguably overdue sexual liberation, and HBO was ready, willing, and able to guarantee frank freedom for the stories to ring true. A literary and theatrical perfect storm had struck at a near-perfect moment. Bingo. I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was eight. And I always knew I was going to be a writer, and I felt like I would was going to write something big. And also, I was very, very feminist, too, maybe because we had no brothers. But, you know, in the 1960s, the world was so blatantly sexist. And I remember thinking when I was, you know, eight or nine years old, I've got to do something about this, you know— boys are better than girls message that one got pretty much everywhere you went. So 
What fueled the observer column? How did that come to be? I, you know, I mean, the subject matter, women, young women in New York, was an area that I'd been writing about and exploring since the early 80s when I started writing for women's magazines. And, you know, the 80s was a time when it was really one of, you know, the big times in history. The 1920s was another time when a lot of young women, single young women, were moving into the cities to find a, quote, better life, to find a bigger love, because, of course, all of these women are looking for love and relationships and, you know, looking for careers. And the early 80s was, you know, it was also the time when women were finally allowed to have the big O, which was the big orgasm. So those two things, you know, a sexual, new kind of sexual freedom and women moving into the workforce in huge numbers really caused a change. I mean, back in the 80s, you know, it was this idea of this single woman was kind of a new concept. All of the rules about dating and relationships had to be rewritten. How many dates do you go on before you have sex with the guy? You know, how can you tell a guy who's a player from a guy who, you know, really wants to settle down? There were endless things to explore. And then I met Darren, and I actually did a story about him for Vogue. And Darren and I just ended up being fantastic friends. So he was coming to New York to shoot Central Park West, and he wanted someone to show him around. So I took him everywhere, and we had a great time, and we went places with Ron Galati, who was the real Mr. Big. So in a way, we had a parallel kind of Sex in the City thing. Darren Starr, whose name sounds like a character in a Harold Robbins novel, was born in Potomac, Maryland. He secured his own place in pop culture and pulp fiction even before Sex in the City premiered on television when audiences embraced such star attractions as Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place, both slick and juicy and hot to trot, as our grandparents might have said. Starr's cocktail was addicting. Trash with class, tales of love and lust, and the quest for power among the young. All done in a manner many notches up from standard sleaze and with an easily detected hint of wit. It was no great surprise that Starr would want to option and adapt for television the urban adventures detailed in Candace Bushnell's spicy columns. The show benefited from Starr's savvy sophistication, including the way he avoided doing an outright spoof of the half-hour genre, while at the same time generously seizing the saga with sneaky, snarky humor. Though often funny, Starr's architecture for Sex and the City in the pilot didn't play as a spoof. With winks at the audience to indicate facetiousness, the characters were authentic and dimensional. Basically, he created the opportunity for viewers to take the stories and the characters as seriously or as humorously as they wanted. Sex and the City may be Starr's ultimate tour de force. Well, initially I wasn't sure. I mean, I knew that I wanted to do a series about sex and relationships in New York, primarily from a female point of view, because that was the point of view of the column. And I had just come off doing a lot of network shows. And I, you know, my idea was like to do something kind of like, you know, the equivalent of what was Channel 4 in Britain, like an indie film for TV that would be 
uncensored and and real and not like you know single camera film comedy that would be R-rated. So I just felt, first of all, I thought the title's fantastic. And as I spent more time developing it, I really thought about, you know, I knew Candace as a friend and I knew her personally. And I felt like the character of Candace didn't, as I knew her, didn't come through as clearly and sort of dimensionally in the column. Because the column was sort of like a series of, it was, you know, brilliant column collected into a book that was, you know, sort of snapshots of New York, but it wasn't about four women who are friends and their lives. So that's sort of just kind of like, as I thought about it as a series and and how to tell that show, it's sort of, I, I evolved from the idea of just sort of Carrie as a narrator of other people's stories to the idea that Carrie would be asking a question that would then somehow reverberate in her own life. And so then I was able to really think of Carrie as really front and center and the protagonist of the series. And that every question she was exploring was actually a question about herself. Well, one of the other things that I thought that you did so well in terms of the architecture of this show was create these other archetypes in the other three women, which basically wound up lasting for nearly 100 episodes. How did you go about doing that? You know, I really wanted to create a dialectic. So when she was exploring a question, she could look at her friends and they would all sort of represent different points of view and that there would be a real sort of debate among these friends and these women that would that would represent different kinds of women. And I just thought of women that I knew. And ultimately, that's what it always goes back to. And sort of, I knew a Samantha, I knew a Miranda, I knew a Charlotte, and I certainly know Carrie. And I just felt like Carrie, in a way, is a synthesis of all these women. And she's more the questioner and the explorer. But her friends really are sort of archetypal women, I guess. So that was from the very beginning of the show, you know, from the pilot, that they would be able to have like discussions and that one thing that was really different for me in terms of that made the show really interesting to write, and I think every show is designed thematically, you know, so it was always about the theme first and the question first. So it really made you sort of think about what you wanted to say and sort of what you wanted to say personally. And, and then the story was always sort of like coming out of the theme. Poor Carolyn Strauss. She never could seem to get her career off the ground. As the former president of HBO's entertainment division, she was involved only in such shows as The Sopranos, The Wire, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Sex and the City. And since leaving the executive offices of HBO, Strauss has had to channel her energies into executive producing another little show of which you may have heard, Game of Thrones. Candace wrote with a really great voice, and it was a really fun read. The characters were really vivid. The life they lived was fun. It was aspirational. But at the same time, you know, these were people who had real emotions, wants, and desires, and relationships. And the friendship between the women in the book really formed a core. The book was real, and it was the real grittiness of New York and the transactional nature of relationships. And it really asked that question that all of the single women I knew were asking was why are there all of these great 30-something single women and no great men to be with them? A question that we're still asking. Most people came to HBO at the time for kind of movies and boxing. And there was a small amount of, I mean, there was original programming. We did the Larry Sanders show and Dream On and Tales from the Crypt. 
but we hadn't sort of 100% figured out where we were in that dynamic. I think what we did know was that we had to offer something very different for creators to come to HBO. Series on network were dominant. So it's like, okay, what can we do? Well, we have creative freedom. And so we were starting to figure out that we could get the network experience showrunners to come to us for something with the promise of more freedom. Okay, you learned how to do it on network television, and you know the rules you want to break. So that was kind of our calling card, and I think that's why Darren came to us with the book, because he knew that the way he wanted to do this had to be pretty frank, and it would not pass muster with uh, network standards and practices. From his vantage point at CAA, where he serves as prominent partner and prestigious agent, Kevin Uvain represents such notable clients as Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, Jennifer Lopez, and many others. But the star he's worked with the longest, his prized bundle of talent since almost the beginning, has been Sarah Jessica Parker, who signed with him when she was a mere 19 and he was moving on up at the William Morris Agency. Uvain grew up in the Bronx, inheriting a love of theater from his mother. After graduating from Fordham, he was spotted in 1981 assisting a celebrity at the Wyndham Hotel on West 58th Street, where the clientele tended toward the theatrical, and Huvain served as a Kevin-of-all-trades from his perch at the front desk. In the kind of fateful moment that would seem corny in a script, Huvain handled one particular celebrity's complaint with such aplomb that another well-connected woman in the lobby took notice. And the next day, seemingly out of the blue, Huvain got a call from William Morris with an offer to work in the agency's legendary mailroom. Parker came along with Huvain when he moved from William Morris to CAA, where he became known as a tough negotiator and revered for championing women in a male-dominated industry. As both their stars ascended, the two never waned in their loyalty and trust for one another. So, how did you uh, first meet and come to represent Sarah Jessica? Well, I'd, you know, growing up in New York and uh, seeing theater, she was the third Annie on Broadway, so I'd seen her from that. But I remember seeing her on square pegs and loving her. And I remember exactly where we met for lunch. We met at the Russian Tea Room. We were in the second booth on the right, and I fell in love. I just fell in love with her. I also thought she was so beautiful, so uh, interesting looking, really uh, stunning. But it was, we're both from large families. Education played a big role for both of us with our families. And it was instant. And I knew I needed to be involved with her. And I think she had just finished Girls Just Want to Have Fun with Helen Hunt. And I signed her from there. So at the time that you hear about this pilot that Darren started, you were sent the script, right? Well, I was very friendly socially with Darren. I'd known him and hung out with him as friends. And he then said to me, you know, I've optioned these articles from Candace. And I can only think about Sarah Jessica Parker. And I truly give him credit for that. He did say, you know, I'm obsessed with her. I want to build this show around her. Can I send you this? And Sarah was on a run, motion picture-wise. L.A. Story. She was doing really well. Tim Burton. She was working with some great directors. And there was no desire to go back to television. She had done a year in the life, and that had been a beautiful experience for her with Thomas Carter on NBC, but there was no desire or there was no instruction to let's look at television series. And he sent it to me 
And it sounds crazy, but it was one of those moments where you just think, uh-oh, pay attention. This could work, and this could be really interesting. Sarah Jessica Parker was a ripe old 11 years old when she made her Broadway debut, playing one of the haunted children in a revival of The Innocents. Three years later, Parker landed the starring role in Annie, the hamlet of cute little girl roles. Her schooling aligned rather perfectly. She attended New York's Professional Children's School, the School of American Ballet, also in New York, and Cincinnati's School for Creative and Performing Arts, even squeezing in a stint at the legendary Hollywood High in Los Angeles. She was a long, long way from Nelsonville, Ohio, where she'd been born on March 25, 1965. In the 1980s and 90s, Parker romped through such quixotically chosen films as Footloose, L.A. Story, Ed Wood, The First Wives Club, and more. She was 32 when she was handed the script for the pilot of Sex in the City. Much of the lore about Sarah Jessica is traditional and even wholesome in terms of her attitude toward family and friends. She's been married to actor Matthew Roderick for more than 20 years, and one could go on for weeks interviewing people who talk about how considerate and non-egotistical she is on sets. Her physicality is anything but traditional, however. She has an incandescence all her own and a sophisticated intelligence that enables her to deliver smart dialogue with snap and sizzle, but without so much as a sukon of pretentiousness. It is an arresting combination of qualities. Kevin sent me a script, and he told me that Darren Starr had developed this show and that it was based on the Candace Bushnell book, which had been a you know, compilation of her columns from the New York Observer, of which I was familiar to the degree that I'd read some columns, that the publisher, for some reason, had sent me that book. I don't know why. I wasn't in a place in my life where people were sending me books. And there was one particular column that I had been familiar with because um, my husband, Matthew, grew up in the city, was born and raised here, and his mode of transportation from the time he was, like, I think 13 or 14 was a bicycle. He rode his bike everywhere. He had one of those famous messenger bikes with no brakes, you know. It's all kind of souped up and jerry-rigged. And there was a column that she wrote called Bicycle Boy about that particular type of man. I remember I called her up and I said, Darren is only thinking about you, you know, be totally transparent about how it came to me. And I said, I've read it, I need you to read it tonight. And call me in the morning. She called me, she said, well, this is interesting. And I said to her, you're gonna do this. <laughs> and she was like, what? I was like, no, you're gonna do this. And we can talk about it, but we'll have a very long conversation, but you're gonna do it. <laughs> so I get the script and I read it and I thought it was fantastic. It stood out and Kevin said to me, you know, Darren would love to meet with you. I was doing a Broadway musical at the time. I was about to get married, and I met him at Eat on Madison Avenue. And we sat and we talked, and um, Darren's a really compelling person to have a conversation with because he's somebody that completely believes. He's, there's no quibbling with him. There's no... He does what he wants to do. He feels confident in his choices, and he really felt that I was right for this. He said, I wrote this with you in my head, which I was struck by because I didn't think that I would ever have made an impression if somebody was writing the role of Carrie Bradshaw. And he said something else to me at that meeting that I thought was really interesting. He said, listen, you could produce this show with me. And I said, I don't know anything about producing television. I've worked in television for years, but I haven't really paid attention to that discipline, thinking one day I might have an opportunity. And he said, don't think of it that way. You know, first you'll consult and you'll study and you'll pay attention and, you know, you'll absorb. 
we talked about the fact that I had never done nudity and I didn't really want to and I didn't feel like it was a great time in my life to start doing it and he said doesn't matter that's not important to this story you don't have to and then I gave the script to my oldest brother Pippin whom I've given many scripts to and to Matthew and both of them read it quickly and said you have to do this and so I did it. I finished this musical. It closed on a Sunday. We started shooting the next morning in New York City. And uh, we shot the pilot very quickly. And my life went on. And I really mean this when I say this. I sort of forgot about it. You know, when you're kind of a journeyman actor, you just, you go from job to job. You're grateful for good experiences. But you don't really invest in the idea of it being able to sustain itself. It's just not the nature of our work, typically. Born in rugged Boulder, Colorado, Kristen Davis spent most of her childhood in Columbia, South Carolina, where at the age of nine, she was cast in a local theater production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In 1987, she graduated from the Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University with a BFA in acting. Like many a struggling actress before her, Davis waited tables and grabbed such small roles as a part in General Hospital, venerable granddaddy of daytime soaps. In 1995, Davis graduated to primetime and the role of Brooke Armstrong Campbell, they must always have three names, on Melrose Place, as well as small parts on other defining shows of the moment as Larry Sanders with the late Gary Shandling, Friends, Will and Grace, and most conspicuously, Seinfeld. Although it took 10 auditions over the course of a year for her to land the role of a girlfriend who, to Jerry's horror, unwittingly uses a toothbrush after it had fallen into the toilet. Theater has also been important to Davis, and she has appeared on stage in New York and London productions, along with the movies The Shaggy Dog, Deck the Halls, and Couples Retreat. More significantly, and corny as it may sound, Davis walks the walk when it comes to using her success in the world of entertainment to raise awareness of issues she cares most about. She serves as a goodwill ambassador with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and as a patron to the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, focusing on efforts to protect baby elephants. Yes, Kristen Davis is as noble as you hoped she would be. So when you were handed the script, uh, the pilot of Sex Mm -hmm, and the City, mm -hmm. what did they say to you? Well, I knew Darren Starr from Melrose Place. And so it came with a letter from Darren saying that this was his new project and he loved it very much. And he wanted me to look at the role of Carrie. And I was like, hmm, interesting. And I think I had already kind of heard the buzz because at the time, the idea that there would be a show that had four women as the main characters was shocking. And the fact that it would shoot in New York was shocking. There were so many kind of interesting things about it. And it was like, what? What? You know, woo. So I start reading. The first page has a description of Carrie. And it said, Carrie is like Dorothy Parker with the body of Heather Locklear. So I was like, Darren, I'm never, what, uh, I can't play that part. What part can't you do? I don't have the body of Heather Locklear in anybody's imagination. Oh. Uh, the Dorothy Parker part wasn't such a dilemma. but the And then also on the page in the pilot, Carrie's rough. You know, she's smoking and swearing and she's rougher. So I just didn't see myself that way. I had never met Sarah Jessica, so I didn't really think. See Sarah Jessica doing it that way, which, of course, she made it her own and changed it. But um, I had heard that she was going to do it, and then I'd heard that she wasn't sure. And then I thought to myself, well, if Sarah Jessica does Carrie, then I should be Charlotte. But Charlotte wasn't as big in the script. It was nothing. I just had faith. I understood her. I understood her, and I had faith that um, my feeling was that her voice was needed 
in the show. It wasn't exactly my voice, so it kind of was a stretch in reality. I'm not married. I was never focused on being married. I was kind of focused on not being married. So <laughs> it was kind of a stretch anyway, but um, I just felt like the other characters in the pilot especially seemed to all have similar opinions, except for Charlotte. So I thought, well, you know, how are you going to have a show with just three characters? Even though it would be fun to watch three characters gallivanting around New York City because we didn't really have that. I still thought that because of the way it was written with the dialogue, you know, like the coffee shop scenes and the, you know, rat-a-tat-tat dialogue, how are you going to have that if everybody agrees? You know, you need to have Charlotte. Once again, Darren Starr. You know, I knew her from Melrose Place, and, and I remember just feeling like she had all the qualities of Charlotte to me, like, I felt that she didn't even know how funny she could be. She did a Seinfeld, I remember seeing, that I thought was really good. So I knew she'd be funny. I really loved her on Melrose Place. And it was really not soon after she did Melrose Place that we did the Sex and the City pilot. But she's just like, especially at the beginning, she's just that sort of perfect, demure girl who you just wanted to put a pie in her face. So did you do a lot of talking with Darren then about what you... Th- I had no talking. Darren, no. Yeah. <laughs> No talking. No. We, uh, I said to my agent, I was like, you know, Carrie just really frightens me. I don't know how I'm going to pull that off. I don't think, I mean, I have to stuff my bra or something. I mean, I just didn't understand how I was going to look like what he had described, right? I did tell him that later. And he said, oh, I was just trying to compliment Candace. And I was like, well, all the actresses are reading what you wrote to compliment Candace. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, but, you know, that's just my insecurities. On the big screen, Cynthia Nixon has played such celebrated yet diverse women as Emily Dickinson, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Nancy Reagan. She was nominated for a Tony Award for Indiscretions and won one for A Rabbit Hole, directed by the revered Mike Nichols. Nixon has been appearing before audiences for decades, on Broadway in The Philadelphia Story in 1980 and on the big screen alongside Tatum O'Neill in Little Darlings. At one point, she managed to appear in two Broadway plays at the same time, Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing and David Rave's Hurley Burley. Fortunately for Nixon, the two theaters were close to one another. But the role in which Nixon made her biggest impression was that of Miranda Hobbs in Sex and the City. Nixon got the Best Supporting Actor Emmy for that one. Her most unusual role? In 2018, Nixon ran for governor against incumbent Andrew Cuomo. I started acting when I was 12, When we did the pilot of Sex and the City, I think I was 30 or 31, and I had never pursued television because it all was in California, and I was very adamantly a New Yorker and wanted to stay in New York. But then this script came along, Sex and the City, that was shooting in New York, and that seemed to have a plethora of female roles, really. It seemed like it wasn't just four women. It actually appeared to me like there were eight of them. So I thought, okay, here's a show. It's shooting in New York. It's got all these women in it. I got to get one of these, right? And I had never really gone up for a series. So they read me. I came in, I read for Carrie, and they were like, yeah, not a Carrie, but come back and read for Miranda. And so my agent understood what a big deal this was to have a show shooting in New York because at that time there was kind of, you know, Law and Order and The Cosby Show and really little else. Kate and Allie, I guess. And so she said, could you put on a little makeup? (laughs) Could you please put on a little makeup? Maybe a skirt. (laughs) Um, So I tried my best (laughs) to do those things. Um, And they brought me back and they read me a bunch of times. And I, you know, I went and tested for the network. And when you do that, you have to sign a contract in case they want you that you can't hold them hostage. 
And I did that and the contract elapsed and, and literally a couple months went by. And I was no longer under contract, but we kept calling. Cynthia came in and read. We saw a couple really good actresses for Miranda. I have to say the one thing that kind of like angsting a little bit about was in my mind, Miranda was a redhead. And at the time Cynthia came in and to read for it, she was blonde. And it's hard to imagine her being blonde, but she was, or she is. And they kept saying the same thing over and over again, which is that we are not ready to commit yet, but we haven't found anybody we like better. And then what finally happened was there was another job that was not a good job, but it was on a series and it was like a, a sure thing. And my amazing manager, who was my agent at the time, just got on the phone with them and just sort of spent the week on the phone with them, just threatening them and begging them and just saying over and over, you're going to lose her, you're going to lose her. And it was, and I was having a Passover Seder at my house. My boyfriend at the time was Jewish and his whole family was coming. Basically, she spent the day before the first night of Passover on the phone. Just, she cried on the phone to them. And during the Seder, actually, the word came through. They've, I've finally broken them. They've finally said, uncle, and they are going to cast you. Kim Cattrall is someone I knew, but she kind of passed on the role at first. She didn't want to do a series. And my partner at the time was friends with her and basically implored her to have lunch with me. And she did. And Kim is just, you know, pivotal and brilliant as Samantha. Chris Noth received an MFA from the Yale School of Drama after earning his undergraduate degree at Marlborough College in Vermont. Academia behind him, Noth was soon cast in three episodes of Hill Street Blues, one of the greatest dramas in the history of television. And throughout his career, he's been able to hew to the quality road, most notably as Detective Mike Logan in more than 100 episodes of Law & Order, through more than 100 episodes of The Good Wife, and in more than two dozen feature films. But Noth is best known by far for playing Mr. Big in 41 episodes of Sex and the City, where he gamely allowed himself to be sexually objectified, just as uncountable numbers of female performers have been for years and years. The tables had been turned, and the women watching gave every indication of approving. What made you interested in this role? Nothing. And I don't mean that in any pejorative or really cynical sense. I... I remember my agent said, you can go up for this if you want, this little ditty. You have to remember HBO wasn't the monolithic entertainment edifice that it is now. You know, it was still, they were doing some quality stuff. And, uh, you know, my agent was probably ignorant as to, you know, what it was or anything. But he just said, it's a half hour, single camera. If you want to go in and meet the guy, do. I don't care if you want to or not. But I was intrigued by the humor and by the freedom of the way they use sex in a really fun and funny way was refreshing. I've never seen that done before. You know, and some of it was very literal, too. Some of the sex in it and the way it reflected on character was just great. And then I was really intrigued by the very last line, which is when she says, have you ever been in love? And he says, absolutely. And I thought, wow, that's such an interesting way to end a pilot or an episode. Who is this guy? Because... The pilot didn't explain, and I would have rejected it if he was just a sort of corporate cipher of a rich man, you know, and that was the fear that it would become that. Have you ever been in love? Absolutely.
American Express is reimagining solutions for small businesses with the launch of the new Business Gold Card. Business Gold helps businesses get the most out of their spending by enabling card members to automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where their business spends the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners the flexibility and tools they need to successfully run and grow their business. From managing cash flow to hiring top talent, new Business Gold Card members can optimize their productivity by taking advantage of unique, limited-time offers from G Suite and ZipRecruiter as well. To learn more about the full benefits and terms, visit amex.co slash business. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Think of it as a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's simple and intuitive, a clear design with data presented in easy-to-digest ways. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. You can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. One of the things I like most about Robinhood is the ability to discover new stocks and track them with a personalized newsfeed. This way, you get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving Origins listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at origins.robinhood.com. That's origins.robinhood.com. I'm living with skid marks, Guy. Oh, no. Oh, terrible. I don't get it. Why do men get skid marks? Is it laziness? Or are they just in a rush? I don't know, but whatever it is, it goes hand in hand with urinating on the seat. I tell you one thing. When your boyfriend is so comfortable, he can't be bothered to wipe his ass. Oh, God. That's the end of romance right there. The Sex and the City pilot began shooting on Monday, June 2nd, 1997, and took 10 days. After it was edited, a select few in the industry got to see it. And I was walking down the street one day, many, many months later, and a woman stopped me, Meryl Poster, and she said, oh, hey, you know, I just saw your show, and it's so great. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, didn't you do a pilot called Sex and City? I was like, oh, yeah, I did. She said, it's really great. And I was like, oh, Thanks. And then HBO said, let's go do it, and I panicked. And I was like, I want to maintain my life. I like doing a few plays a year and a movie and maybe a TV movie of the week. I don't know, all of a sudden it felt like somebody was like holding me hostage or something, or, or there was just these limitations which felt very suffocating. It was sort of some theoretical which had, wasn't really based on any reality. Was any part of your caution or hesitancy the fact that You're not Carrie Bradshaw. This is not autobiographical. No, correct. I mean, there's so much that I. Shared sensibilities. Yeah, we share some. There are things that are similar. We, I always say, we look alike. But actually, if I had, you know, been more thoughtful about it, I would have said to myself, "Well, this is somebody who is couldn't be more different from me and my life, and therefore, what could be more interesting?" I wasn't really thinking about the part and what it offered, but really about what I assume to be the limitations of a long commitment to a television series. Because the part was as radically different as anything I'd ever done in my life. She was. Forgive the inevitable question. How much of Carrie is Candace? Uh, it was 100%. I mean, absolutely 
I mean, when I saw the pilot, I just about fell off my chair because Sarah Jessica Parker, she had the same watch. She had the same ring. And we actually smoked the same brand of cigarettes back then. But she had somehow picked up a lot of my mannerisms. So my friends were like, oh, my God, it's you. As series production grew more imminent, all was not quiet on the Eastern Front. Sarah Jessica grew increasingly anxious by the prospect of being tied to a television series and sought an escape route, going so far as to meet with her agent Kevin Uvain and Lee Gabler, then the savvy head of CAA's television department, and telling them she would be willing to do an HBO movie for free if they would release her from all obligations to Sex and the City. Huvain came about as close to demanding she do it as an agent can get with a client, and his persistence, coupled with encouragement from Parker's new husband Matthew Broderick and her brother Pippin, pushed Parker giddily, if still warily, over the edge. The show would go on. In typical fashion, Kevin, you know, heard everything, my concerns, and said, this is silly for you to be worried. This is a place and a home where you can talk to people about this. This isn't a network where you sign your contract for seven years and you walk away from a life that you enjoy that's interesting to you. So, you know, Chris at the time, Carolyn, they were like, let's just make a show. If we all are happy, we'll do more. If we're not happy, we won't do more. We don't have to answer to advertisers. We don't have to answer to the typical people that sort of dictate how we choose to have this experience. Did the operative word sex in Sex in the City feel your desire to go to HBO? And did you feel like you had lots of creative freedom to explore the sexuality of the show, not being on a network? Absolutely. I mean, it was like there was one moment where ABC was interested in it, and I even asked them, could you even call the show Sex in the City? But it was never really my intention to want to bring it to a broadcast network. It was only about going to HBO. And I think for me, it was the idea of going to a place that HBO at the time was primarily movies, and that this would be compatible with a movie, that you'd watch a movie and you'd see an episode of Sex and the City and you wouldn't suddenly feel like you were watching a television show. You'd feel like you were watching another film. And, you know, from the beginning, I was always wanting to have filmmakers involved. Susan Seidelman directed the pilot who directed Desperately Seeking Susan and a number of other movies. Sarah Jessica Parker was really known as a movie star, not a TV actress. And it was just sort of the idea that this would be not like a TV series, and certainly content-wise, that the comedy would come from the frankness of the situations and the language. And I felt like so much of TV comedy at the time was like about euphemisms, and the and this would be like, okay, it's not about euphemisms; it's about everything's on the table. So now the comedy's got to come from like a real place of frankness and truth, and that the audience can is going to like recognize and sometimes be shocked by things they hadn't seen on TV before, but they're not things that people weren't talking and saying and living their lives about. I mean, that's the, I, I felt that it was going to be very relatable, but network TV, I feel like, is always so, you know, it's a censored environment for content. So there was nothing adult or relatable to me on network television. How did Mr. Big relate to that? Did you feel that when you were starting to set up who he was and what he was about in the show? Did you feel like you kind of had a good starting place? Absolutely. I feel like, first of all, I knew Mr. Big. Candace is Mr. Big, who was Ron Galati, while they were together. And we spent a lot of time together. And, and I felt like that was the one sort of narrative thread that she was weaving through her columns. It was something that she was sort of coming back to that relationship. And I definitely feel like that 
that relationship was going to be a continuing storyline throughout the show and that it would that in fact it would be a show that was a comedy that was you know there would be standalone episodes but that relationship was going to be serialized and I think that was foundational to the show because I think the idea that that relationship becomes serialized the show is serialized with everyone's relationship eventually but the first relationship carrying Mr. Big you know certainly the very first season and for all the subsequent seasons but it was really the only relationship that we were following I was always puzzled by why they cast me as Mr. Big because I just couldn't I really never felt at first comfortable in the skin of a guy that you know wore those suits and was so fussy and and detached and whose life was about you know good restaurants and good wines and I don't know it just seemed like what the fuck is this and how am I going to play this and it was just a you know a question of sort of focus and zen-like attention to not letting Chris Noth's sloppy character habits slip into it. (laughs) It was a process of deletion, really. Actor Willie Garson, like his Sex and the City colleague Chris Noth, attended Yale Drama School after receiving his theater degree from Wesleyan University. He started appearing on screens big and small in 1986 and has, since then, put together an impressive and lengthy acting portfolio including stints on television's NYPD Blue and White Collar, and three films for the Farrelly Brothers, Kingpin, There's Something About Mary, and Fever Pitch. He appeared in no fewer than 27 Sex and the City episodes, as well as both of the Sex and the City movies, as Sanford Blatch. Well, I was struggling to be an actor. I hadn't had, I'd done one pilot prior to that, but I was just guesting on a lot of shows and doing a lot of movies, parts, little parts. And then it was pilot season, and I didn't really get it. I didn't get what the show was. I didn't get what HBO was yet. And I was just auditioning for pilots. And I went in on this one, and I remember the casting director and Darren Starr were uh, in a very, very small room at Warner Brothers. And... I went in and I just read for it, just myself with Darren. And um, I went to leave the room and Darren said, hey, Willie. And I turned, he goes, that's a really nice suit. <laughs> I said, I said um, thanks. <laughs> and, uh, and I left. And then pilot season was going on and it came to that they wanted to screen test me, which is the last thing they do for pilots before you get cast. And I got another one that same day. So Sex and the City was in the morning, and I went in the uh, waiting room, and there were all these women there auditioning for the other roles, waiting, and they were talking to each other, and they said, well, do you know who's going to play Carrie? And one of the girls said... I heard they're talking to Sarah Jessica Parker. And I hadn't spoken to Sarah in a couple of weeks. So I didn't know anything about that. So anyway, I went in and I got it. They called very quickly. And I was the only person for that role. And then I went on the other pilot that afternoon and I got that one as well. I called Sarah and I said, what do you know about this Thing, sex in the city and she goes yeah I might be doing it she goes I don't know I haven't decided yet I don't know if I want to do a show again everyone hates you when you're on a show they say terrible things about you all the time 
but, you know, it's pretty good. And she goes, why? And I said, well, because I think I'm doing it, playing um, Stanford. And she said, oh, my God, that would be so great. Uh, you know, so I like to think that I made her do it, basically. The first day of production of the series, I walked to the set. I was living downtown. I walked a couple blocks to the set. It was a Banana Republic on 6th Avenue and um, Bleecker Street. And I never looked back. And I remember being in the shower the next morning on day two, and I was like, there is no place else I'd rather be. Like, I knew that quickly. How did you approach the character, and was his sexuality, did you consider it to be a meaningful part of the character? Well, I auditioned as a guy who happened to be gay, period. He wasn't flamboyant. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't, I hate the word, but it wasn't queenie or anything. And when we got to shoot the pilot, I got the part. And that, that was my initial audition. That was at HBO. I just auditioned at a guy. There were lines about him being gay, but that was it. I mean, I didn't play it at all. And I got it. And then when we went to shoot the pilot, Darren Starr was like, let's go gayer. Like, can he be gayer? Like, like, like more gay? And I'm like, I guess, but I didn't want to be like offensive to anyone um, because it, it wasn't something that was really being done on television. I mean, other than I guess I don't know Paul Lind or, or Charles Nelson Riley or something. I didn't I didn't know how to do it, and then so I can't pushing it farther until we hit, we're like, that's it. That's, that's what we want. And it was like, okay. And I just did it. And truly out of respect and, and possibly some embarrassment, I didn't even watch the show for the first two years because I was scared that it was so over the top and that it was offensive until when the show caught fire and then we started hearing from the audience all the time, and the community was reaching out and saying, oh, my God, you're, you're exactly like my best friend, Steve. You know, and then it became like, oh, we're so happy to see people that we know on television, and you're, you're so great at this. Michael Patrick King grew up in an Irish Catholic family in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where his father delivered coal and beer, and his mother ran a Krispy Kreme donut shop. He was literally an altar boy who would trace his storytelling prowess love of language, and outsider's perspective to his Irish heritage, even as he avoided a hoary stereotype by managing never to down a drink in his life. He funded his education at Mercyhurst College through student loans and by working as a messenger at a bank, moving to New York City for acting classes at Lee Strasberg, and through a connection at Greyhound, struggling young talents never know which connections will pay off, got a job unloading buses in the graveyard shift, 5 p.m. to 3 a.m., he also waited tables, of course, performed in plays for free, and eventually joined an improv troupe. It was there that he first felt the lightning hit him. King began performing comedy with a partner, touring the country before eventually going it alone with a stand-up. He started writing plays. His first one act got nearly instant acclaim. By the time Carolyn Strauss sent him the Sex in the City pilot, King had moved to Los Angeles, where he landed writing gigs on the short-lived CBS comedy Good Sports with Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill and the better-known, indeed classic, Murphy Brown. King idolized comedy writer-directors who had a light touch in the tradition of Preston Sturgis, and King's experience writing for strong female leads certainly didn't hurt. Strauss hoped that King's talent for comedy would add more zing to Sex and the City, 
And as with most of her hunches, this one paid off. Her zing was zung. Following Darren Starr's departure, King became not just Sex and the City's sole showrunner, but its muse and guardian as well. I was called by Carolyn Strauss of HBO. She gave me my very first job at the Comedy Channel in New York. It was called Comedy Channel, and then it morphed into Comedy Central, and I've known her for years. And she said to me, we did this pilot called Sex and the City. Will you look at it and tell me if you want to work on it? So I said, okay. I was a multi-camera comedy writer, and right before Carolyn called me about this, I had done a rewrite on an idea HBO had for a single-camera show about a beauty parlor. And it was not what they wanted it to be. It wasn't funny, and it wasn't, in their opinion, smart. So I had done this thing on it, which they liked and then wound up not doing. So Carolyn called me up and said, I think you can do that again. Like, you've made the leap from multicam comedy guy to I think you can do this single-camera stuff. So I saw the pilot. They sent me a VHS, and I put it in. And... Um, I watched it. I was unattached to the entire experience, except for the last moment. I watched it thinking, is there anything here that I can add to this? It wasn't particularly funny at all. The pilot didn't have a lot of comedy. It had a lot of ideas. And, uh, you know, pilots are always entry-level everything. You know, when you see a pilot of stuff, you're just like, wow, it really grew from there. So when I looked at the pilot, I was like, okay, in the very last moment where Sarah Jessica who I've always liked, got out of the car. Everybody was good in the pilot. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying nothing grabbed me. And then she got out of the car, and she thinks she carries all full of herself. And uh, Big throws her out of the car ostensibly and says, have you ever been in love? And she turns around and says to him, have you ever been in love? And he says, absolutely. And the cut back to Sarah Jessica looked like she'd been hit with a two-by-four in her gut. And it was such a confused, surprising, mysteriously impactful, silent thing that when I saw it, I went, I don't know what that is, but I'm very drawn to that moment of someone who thought they were all knowledge being totally thrown by a primal question like, have you ever been in love from a guy? And I thought, oh, okay, I'll talk about this with Darren. And so I talked to Darren, and, and he and I started on the first series, the two of us in a room, and we did the entire writing, filming, and editing process before anyone had ever seen them. They were all done before they went on the air. I hadn't met Michael before. I mean, you're just looking for the best people you can find. I was reading... Lots and lots of scripts, and I remember just reading Michael's script, and it just, like, jumped out at me. And I, I would say that, you know, Michael certainly came from much more of a half-hour comedy world than I did, so I was looking for those half-hour people who are smart in general. But I think Michael certainly brought humor, and, and then, you know, very quickly, I think, went from having come from a four-camera world to sort of, like, getting the rhythm of the single-camera film, because... I felt like, you know, the difference between four-camera and single-camera film is like, I always said, you don't want to like, people aren't telling jokes in this show. The comedy is not coming from jokes, and I think that's the sort of bread and butter of four-camera, of sitcoms, which I had never done a sitcom, so, but Michael was, he's just a brilliant guy, he's very, very funny. I think we both sort of were discovering like, 
how to find where the humor comes from. Because I always said if somebody is really like delivering a punchline, then another character has to laugh on screen because we're not a set-up punchline kind of show. I had no idea what a truly big deal it was going to be. It was just, here's an interesting, smart show that shoots in New York. I got to be a part of it. And about women. And about women, yeah, and about sex and dating. And we didn't know what it was yet, but it certainly was different. We did the whole first season without an airing, which, you know, is unheard of. I mean, not unheard of now with Netflix, I guess, but like... Odd for back then, right? No feedback. No feedback. We had no idea. No idea. I remember talking to Sarah at one point. We were like, do you think that Gloria Steinem is going to be mad at us? Like, I whisper now still because, like, she was our hero, right? Did you also feel, though, that it was going to be great? No, no, no. We were just scared. No, no. We were scared. No. Because there was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. We were just petrified. Like, we had a hat that they made for us as a gift at the end of either the pilot or the first season, I can't remember. And on the front, it said sex. And on the back, it said, and the city. And I used to wear it around <laughs> down in New York. <laughs> it really makes me laugh. And I would be in Starbucks, and there'd be a guy, and he'd be like, oh, is that that real sex show? And I'd be like, no, no, it's a show. It's a scripted show. I'm not on real sex. <laughs> it was so- and then I was like, I guess I'd have to stop wearing this hat. But yeah, we didn't know what anybody was going to make of us at all. The fact that we swore, the fact that we talked about sex, the fact that we talked about things that just were never spoken about on television in any way, shape, or form in normal television. We were nervous. We were hopeful, of course. You're always hopeful. But we had no idea. We filmed the whole thing, you know, and then they showed it in the summer, and then I guess they started to rerun it during the year. And I think it was in the following summer after the first, season that I was with a friend of mine having a drink on an outside patio and I heard a in the distance a sort of a commotion you know and it was a group of girls young girls and it started off at a sort of a giggle twitter to a sort of almost screaming and I was like looking I couldn't figure out why they were looking and pointing at me and coming toward me and then I realized they were saying it's Mr. Big, it's Mr. Big. And I was like, just shut the fuck up. We got people around here. <laughs> Don't do this to me. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of my private life in New York. And it was also the beginning of when people had cameras in their phones. And uh, that was another end of an era. So that's when I first realized, wow, people are watching this. And they're not just watching it, they're really digging it. And I've, this character is somehow arousing something in them that I'm not sure I like. <laughs> what were your expectations like during that uh, hiatus? Oh, none whatsoever. I didn't get it. I didn't know women that well on this level. Like much of the country, I didn't realize that women talk like this to each other and how this was going to make such a difference in how people thought about the conversation. Sex and the City was the first show given a big deal screening similar to a feature film at a movie theater. The brainchild of veteran HBO publicity master Quentin Schaffer. The red carpet event was held at Sony's Lowe's Theater on Upper Broadway with an after-dinner party at Lot 61. The sense of event was palpable. HBO had gone all out. And there were some very negative reviews, which people forget. I mean, I had a neighbor 
who felt like he needed to tell me that the Wall Street Journal hated us and only liked me. So he took the review and cut it out and put it under my door. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. That's so, so much what I needed to see in the morning when I woke up. Um, <laughs> you know, you forget that now, right? Of course, thank goodness. But, you know, it was a shock to the system. And a lot of the critics were older white men, you know, who were just like, what the heck is this? Boo. These women are, you know, unlikable. Pulitzer Prize-winning TV critic Tom Shales spent more than 30 years writing for the style section of the Washington Post, chosen in one survey of industry executives as both their favorite and least favorite critic. Virtually all seemed to agree, however, that he was the most influential. Love him or loathe him. Born in Elgin, Illinois, Shales got his B.A. in journalism from the American University in Washington, D.C. He has four books to his name, including Live from New York, which was co-written by your humble narrator here. Full disclosure, after working together, Shales and I have remained dear friends. I guess that's how I was able to guilt shit him into being interviewed here about what he considers one of his few major critical misfires, a notoriously nasty pan of Sex in the City's pilot, including these two gems. First, Parker, Shales wrote, quote, usually seems so light and funny that it's dismaying to see her in bad form, looking like a walking flea market and coming across about as subtly as a tsunami, end quote. And second, quote, Sex in the City is a hopeless bummer, like Love American style, only smutty, end quote. You certainly cut to the chase there, Tommy. Well, I always believe that uh, readers should know exactly how you felt after reading a review. And I'm afraid uh, that sometimes made me go way overboard like then. You know, they had plenty of positive reviews, too. I don't think I devastated them. I do remember that uh, spokesman, a friend I know at HBO actually said, uh, they can't wait to read your review. Uh, they're all excited about your review, and uh, you're the one who counts the most to them. Well, he may have been just buttering me up, or you know, but that made me feel terrible because I knew the thing had already been written, and it was in type, and it just hadn't appeared yet. And here he was saying, you know, oh, boy, Sarah is so excited. And, <laughs> and I knew the thing was going to be um, so mean, and I, I felt like the lowest creature on earth. I really did which maybe I am. <laughs> but you would consider yourself a Sarah Jessica Parker fan, right? I always had, and uh, it hurt to criticize her. I do think she was photographed poorly, and I think she was maybe not in the best of hands when they started out. I don't know. But it seems to me that she fared better as the series went on. I know, but did you have to be so mean? <laughs> Imagine poor me. Let's put the sympathy on me for a minute. Hearing that she was all excited about reading my review and knowing that it was going to be a slam like that. And even with kind of personal things there about her appearance, which I'm sorry, I regretted that. I remember that I actually ran into her in Sarah Jessica Parker and I do not travel in the same circles, but there I was in New York and she popped up off an elevator and I just tried to disappear into the wall or something. So I didn't have to say hi. And uh, fortunately she didn't notice me, which happens to me a lot. So there was a, no catastrophe involved there. But she looked better in person than she did on television. To give you some credit here, it seems like as the show went on, you seemed to like it more. By the time July 20th, 2002 came around, you said, it's the smartest sitcom on television. That's quite the journey. <laughs> the critic can change his mind, and shows do change. They do develop. They do improve, thank God. And that's what happened, I really think, in this case. I think it got better and better. What was the dynamic like between you and Sarah Jessica for the first chunk of time? You know, we were friendly, 
I mean, at the beginning, people were much more social. People had more time. There were more parties and dinners. And I mean, she was always adorable. I, you know, she's charming and I don't know. I mean, I would always say like, oh, you know, I mean, she would be, oh, I hope you like it. And I would always be like, yes, I love it. It's great. I mean, there was always like a ton of enthusiasm and, you know, but she married Matthew that summer that we first started shooting. So the thing is, she didn't live the life of a single woman. She never did. So that wasn't her life. You know, she was married. They were an established couple. They lived in New York for, you know, a long time. So, I mean, they have their social life in their circle. So, I mean, I would see her, you know, at different events or parties. And it's always great. I mean, she's adorable. She's super nice. I actually fell in love with her instantly. I mean, I was there from day one of the series. I mean, pre-production and everything. When Sarah Jessica and I met talking to Pat Field, and we were on a gray flannel couch. I was on the left, Darren was in the middle, she was on the right, and they were talking about clothes and schedules, and we just kept leaning back and laughing at each other, like talking at each other. Like, it really felt like I was meeting my best friend from seventh grade, the square pegs. Sarah Jessica was sort of there, smart and funny and so game. And from that moment, the entire experience of the show was a complete combination of muse and inspiration and wanting to be very sure that I was giving her the very best because I cared so much about her as a being and something happened where I sort of understood her as Carrie. And it was so funny because at one point she said to me very late when I was directing an episode, she said to me, it's hard for me because I feel like you think you have a way you want this to be. And I said, no, I actually write in this very abstract frame of what you're going to do. I don't have a line reading in my head when I'm writing. I'm writing for the essence of what you might do with it what Carrie is. So from the beginning, I loved her and she was so game. She was really the star next door. She could show up and be that thing that commands attention, that magical being that is a star, Carrie Bradshaw, Sarah Jessica Parker. That's true to who she is, but she's also the girlfriend and the buddy. She's not Carrie. She's the heart and soul of Carrie. She breathes the emotional life into that paper doll. She's the soul of Carrie. She's the heartbreak of Carrie. She's smart like Carrie. She has all the Carrie elements. It's not like when you, like when I did the first season of Will and Grace, after we did the first Sex and the City season, we didn't know if it was gonna get picked up and I started Will and Grace. I was a supervising producer on that. When Megan Mullally was doing Karen and would forget a line, and she would say line, and it was a whole other person, that's somebody who isn't Karen. Sarah Jessica didn't feel different when she wasn't Carrie. There's not like a great transition that happens. She's maybe not as insecure, but she can understand being insecure because she's off-brand as well. She's not a Hollywood leading lady, but she is. She has money, but she's a poor girl in her soul. There's a lot of contrast to Carrie that makes her so interesting. That's why everybody, when you ask them which one they are, they always say Carrie first. 
I'm Carrie and I'm also uh. She's not Carrie, but she can play Carrie. I have a weird hybrid of her in my mind to write that character. I'm writing it for her, pulling from something, but I'm never doing Sarah Jessica when I'm writing Carrie. I'm never thinking of her life. I'm thinking of this other being. Darren Starr and Michael Patrick King could not have been more similar and different. Huh? Well, let's just say neither epitomized the stereotype any more than one could be mistaken for the other. Darren has an ability to see the value in something as a producer. You know, he saw in that book something. He's extremely good at ferreting out culture. You know, Melrose plays 902. Like, he sees a white space and he knows how to fill it. He also knows how to hire writers. He knew how to set up a writing room and he knew who he wanted as his second. He saw in Michael Patrick a lot of strengths and I think skill and humor and pathos. So Darren set us up, I think, so beautifully, perfectly. And Darren has this gift also. Darren loves, and I don't mean this in a diminishing way, but Darren likes surface. Darren really likes all the color and flavor that you can see and taste and understand immediately. Like, what hits your palate? How do you experience that? How does an audience process and then how do you move on to the next plot Oh my God, point? my notes, I have Darren Horizontal and Michael Patrick Vertical. Exactly, exactly. And then Michael is all dig, 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 peel, 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 peel. So I think we could never have done Michael Patrick first season because you had to understand the archetypes. You had to understand this setup and the conceit. And, and some conceits that went away, the talking to the camera, all that stuff that was like... Carrie went away doing that, and then all those extra people, they popped in, you know, the interstitial stuff, the construction man and toxic bachelors. The whole first season, like, the first thing I said to Darren is, we got to lose these talking heads that are talking to the camera. Nobody wants to see this. When Carrie looked at me in the third episode, she was walking down the street with Stanford, and she looked in the camera and goes, you know what I mean? I was like, stop. I believe this. I believe her. I don't want her to look at me. I'm watching a life. I don't want to know I'm watching a TV show. I said, we got to get these out. This is real. Darren was willing to like get rid of stuff because he's a smart producer. He set up archetypes. So here is Samantha, and here's how she thinks, and you can count on that as an audience. Here's Miranda. Here's how she thinks, and you can count on that. And here's Charlotte. And then there's Carrie, who takes it all in, and she's the sort of every man, even though she's all those other you know embroidered stuff. We're like the three Greek goddesses, right? I'm Athena, and Samantha is Aphrodite, and Charlotte is Hera, you know, the goddess of marriage. But we're also, you know, you could think about it as other ways, too, as, you know, the brain, the heart, and the loins, you know. And it also seemed to us very clearly that we were these archetypal friends, but also advisors, but that also we were three parts of Carrie, do you know? And mm-hmm. that when Carrie wanted to figure out things about herself, she would go to her friend who was also that part of her own personality and sit with that and try and figure it out. I was brought on by HBO to run the show with Darren. The show was going to be both of us running the show. Which, by the way, let's pause for people who aren't really aware that easier said than done Toad. Very complicated. Very complicated. Two different beings both think that they're very good. How would you describe your sensibilities versus his? He's wicked emotionally. His, like, his humor is wicked in your mind. Mine is 
in your chest. He's very verbally facile and knows an enormous about social stratus and structures and money. And I come from emotion and character. Was that part of like, the exercise of, of not only launching the show in such a clear way, but just from a writing point of view, making sure that it's almost like each line of dialogue was earned. There could never be a line here that was moved over oh, no, to somebody no, no, else. Oh, no, 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 right, right. I mean, the great magic of the show is Candace Bushnell's original palette was very clear. Uh, there are types of women in New York. And the thing about the journey of Sex and the City to me was it started out with three primary color archetypes. You know, the sexually voracious career gal, the cut-off sarcastic woman, and then the traditional woman. And then Carrie was the avatar that went in between them all. And the journey of the series for me was taking the primary color archetype and slowly, slowly shading it. So if Samantha started out as just plain red, by the end she was deep red and light red and a little maroon. I think if Michael Patrick King hadn't joined on, I might not have uh, lasted as long as I did because there was a danger of him becoming just a detached, rich, cool-as-a-cucumber guy. I mean, I liked the sort of focused detachment he had on the one hand, but if that was all it was going to be, then I, don't, I never would have lasted. Michael likes jokes with sex. That's a very specific thing for Michael. Like, he doesn't think the sex can ever... He can't be gratuitous. It has to be kind of funny, because that's where we were, that we were half-hour comedy. And so his approach to that, he was always looking for the jokes. And I think Darren was telling these big stories, you know? But I think he had Michael there, too, because Michael had a history different than Darren's. Michael had a history of coming in and doctoring and adding jokes and being in the room as someone who could, and stand on a set, whether it was tons of three camera shows before us or even during our hiatus, they would pull him back into LA and say, come on tape day and just start throwing jokes at us. Was there ever a time when you thought maybe we're going too far? Um, you know, at the very beginning of the show when I was watching a couple of cuts and I remember seeing like a scene, I think Kim Cattrall was like topless in a couple scenes in bed and everything. And I thought, I hope people don't like sort of mistake this for like soft porn. And it was always really a, I was always very clear with HBO, like it's not about being able to see and say whatever you want because people have access to that, you know? So it's like how to be frank and real and adult and still be funny without crossing that line into making, into feeling like, okay, this is, feels distasteful, you know? And so I was like, you know, those first few cuts, I'm thinking, oh, wow, I wonder if this is like, you know, a career ender, you know, I didn't want it to be Red Shoes Diary, you know, it's like, I, I, I just didn't want this sort of like, everything to sort of like, kind of shock people to the point where they just like, weren't going to like be entertained. But I also felt that people were talking about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, you know, a year before the show came on. And so there was this frank talk about sexuality that was out there. And I felt the audience was ready for it. We're certainly the audience that was paying for HBO. So I always say that our calling card was the sex that got us in the door and was so much fun to write because no one had ever written it. 
No one. I remember when I wrote the Up the Butt scene, where they're in the cabin, they're talking about where Charlotte, a guy wants to go up her butt, and she says, I can't be Mrs. Up the Butt, and the four of them are in a cab. And I remember the table read of that. I remember writing it, first of all, and thinking, this is no pun intended, complete virgin territory. No one has ever said, if you put a finger up there, if you do this, the power structure, Miranda, Samantha saying a hole's a hole, Charlotte saying, I'm not a hole, I went to Brown. Carrie being the cool sort of modulator of the talk show of Up the Butt. All of that was so much fun to write because it was never written and it was naughty and yet fresh. And at the table read, I can still see how red their faces were. Their faces were beat red from saying it out loud. The combination of laughing and saying it, it, it was like a niacin rush. No one had ever seen it. And the it. awareness that they were going in a place where no yeah, one Yeah, no one had ever gone, but with a very well-crafted structure. Not random, dirty words. Words in the right order to make it be funny, smart, dirty. Front, back, who cares? A hole is a hole. Can I quote you? Oh, don't be so judgmental. You could use a little back door. I'm not a hole. Honey, we know. Look, all I'm saying that this is, this is a physical expression that the body was, well, it was designed to experience. And P.S., it's fabulous. What are you talking about? I went to Smith. That was early. You didn't know those characters. So it all started with Darren and I in a room laughing about, can you write Mrs. Up the Butt? And the first time we exchanged scripts with each other, you asked me, like, what's the difference? Darren handed me back my script, and every third line had a red circle around it through the whole script, like a circle. And he said, it's really good, but I don't think we need all these areas. It slows it down. And I looked at it, and I said, Darren, everything you circled is a joke. And he was not from jokes. He was from the nighttime soap world. And I was from all comedy world. So the combination of that first year was us sort of allowing both of those things to come together to form those early scripts. Michael Patrick seems to think that um, the big level jump was the uh, scene in, uh, with the four women in the cab with the Pakistani driver talking about something. That Anal Charlotte, sex, yes. yes that, uh -huh. There you go. It was fantastic. I mean, it was like so much of what the show was about that we could actually talk about these things. Right? And that maybe you'll have conversations with your friends about them. Maybe you even won't. But to see it on television was, you know, kind of really jaw-dropping. And to think that women watching it might then feel empowered yeah. to, to have talk about it. And, right. And, you know, men watching it, too. I mean, that was the thing. It was that a lot of men were dragged, you know, sort of unwillingly or they had to pretend it was unwillingly. But I think it also fostered a lot of sex talk between men and women, you know, that really brought things out in the open. I mean, there was nothing accessible for four ladies in the back of a cab with a, a Pakistani cab driver with a turban on his head talking about going up the butt. That has never been seen. I remember reading the second script with the taxi cab and up the butt and thinking like, oh my God, what is this? Like, I was so prudish and overwhelmed. And then when they started reading it at the table read, they could not stop laughing, the actresses, because they were so mortified. <laughs> now it doesn't seem like anything because we created a new norm for how you can talk about sex. But the amount of laughing that was happening and nervousness 
And then I suddenly realized, oh, this show is going to be so special because that's exactly what they did. Like, I couldn't even tell when I looked back. Like, I knew at the table read they were laughing because they were nervous about saying all these things. But Michael was really smart and said, that's the exact energy I want in the taxi cab. Writer-producer Amy Harris told me, God smiled down on me when I asked about her journey from being Darren Starr's assistant to a key writer-producer involved in the entirety of Sex and the City's run. From there, she went on to be executive producer of the show's prequel, The Carrie Diaries, and co-wrote the movie Just My Luck, which starred Lindsay Lohan. Harris is evidently an optimist. You will hear her thoughts on dating while working on Sex and the City, but in 2009, she married television director Jason Riley, later the father of her daughter. I just was sort of blown away by like, yeah, they were just being human in that moment laughing. And then it's like, yes, that's what we want, the humanity of this moment. And then, of course, the end of that story for me was sitting at the premiere with my parents, being very proud to show them this show I was working on, and then realizing that halfway through the episode that there was going to be a whole up-the-butt discussion, and my dad's arm is next to my arm, and I'm sweating (laughs) and getting more and more nervous. And like, oh my God, is he just going to be so uncomfortable? And then it was even worse, which is he was laughing hysterically and thought it was hilarious, which of course made it even worse for me because <laughs> I was hoping he was going to be offended, but he thought it was hilarious. And so then I just had to think about my parents and I was completely freaked out. Once again, Sarah Jessica Parker's agent, Kevin Huvain. I was very clear that she was never going to do nudity. I put that in her contracts because I needed to. She's never felt that that was necessary and they had to know that that was going to be the case and it was never going to affect the quality of the show but she was adamant there was never a problem i mean there was the original like i'm not going to do nudity great so that just became carrie carrie doesn't do nudity and we worked around it we got we did one dolly by a scene where she was having sex with her bra off from behind and uh, that was just the only thing i mean She did it all, as long as it was done well. There were times, particularly at the beginning, when it was Michael and Darren, when we didn't have any female writers yet, where they would come to us as women, and we were like their female experts on being women and everything from, you know, sex to your period to, you know, it's like they have no firsthand experience of it. So they would come to us and ask us sometimes embarrassing questions. It was really thrilling and I felt like you know those dogs on those really long leashes in a yard they don't even know they're on a leash that's what it was like working at HBO for me because I'd come from the networks where the leash was really tight and when I got to Sex in the City I really felt we were tethered but very lightly and really the only thing that pulled us back was our own taste level. Former HBO president of entertainment Carolyn Strauss I mean, look, I think with, like, these shows, it's not like we go, okay, here's your check and go make your show. It's like we have a lot of creative conversations at the top. You know, we were in there with casting, and we gave notes on stuff, but I think the notes that we give, or at least tried to give, were, I think it was like we are all coming from a place where we understood what the goals we were trying to achieve. And so I think our value was being somebody who's still a little outside of the moment-to-moment of making the show and being able to say, what about this? Have you thought about that? I'm feeling this. And I think that you get to a point of 
hopefully you get to a point of respect with the showrunner where they will value your opinion. Not that they take it all the time. Certainly I have plenty of arguments, but they understand I'm coming to them as a partner and not as a, I am the boss. We have a teabag situation. Oh, I understand. Just breathe through your nose. When you're sucking his balls. What? No! I was talking about Harry leaves his old teabags around the house. Oh, I thought you meant teabagging. Why is it called... Oh, I get it. Because they hang Shh. and the dipping. Oh, great. Now I've lost my shoes and my appetite. Mm. I was with a friend this summer at a store, helping her pick out a couch. It took 10 minutes to grab a salesperson, and then he disappeared for another 10 minutes after we asked what other colors were available. When we finally got to order, only then did we find out it would take 10 weeks and the delivery charges were going to be more than $100. I wish she had known about Article Furniture then. Article is an online-only furniture company that offers great selection, great prices, and most importantly, great quality. So several weeks ago, I went on to article.com and got my first look at the Scandinavian simplicity of Article's modern furniture. Clean lines, awesome fabrics, and their pricing was downright surprising. Turns out that when you don't have to pay for showrooms and salespeople, you actually can price things lower than your competition. I wound up picking out several items, and Article has a flat rate of $49. And because my items were in stock, they arrived within two weeks. By the way, Article offers a 30-day return policy as well, so you can actually live with your furniture for a month before deciding if it works for you. Now, Article is offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, visit article.com slash origins. That's all it takes. Go to article.com slash origins and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash origins to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more at article.com. You do this every time. Every time. What, do you have some kind of radar? Carrie might be happy it's time to sweep in and shit all over it? What? No, no, look, I came here to tell you something. I made a mistake. You and I... You and I... Nothing! You cannot do this to me again! You cannot jerk me around! Welcome back. Once again, Candace Bushnell. I mean, the one thing that I personally don't necessarily agree with Darren on... You know, at the beginning, Darren said, oh, all women want to find is love. They all want love. They all want a relationship. They all want love. I think that's a really sexist attitude. We don't go around saying all men want love. They all want a relationship. They want it more desperately than anything else. But we lay that on women. It's like that's really our only option. So that's why I really hesitated at the beginning when you brought up the love thing. Because, you know, as women... I think that there are many things for us to strive for. And this idea that love and a relationship is the only thing, you know, worth having as a woman is just absolute crap. And I suppose I saw perhaps they were really able to define the character when they could define her as she's seeking love above everything else. And I don't agree with that, and it's something 
that I've battled with my entire career and continue to battle with in novels, etc. There's always this insistence that a woman, to be valid, has to have a relationship and has to have a love interest. Well, that's what made Samantha kind of refreshing then in that equation, right? Because you had somebody who was able to push back on that. Right. But I think for the audience, that is what really anchored the show and made it universal because even women are not that interested in seeing shows about career women, even though they say that's what they want. So I think that making this love affair between Carrie and Mr. Big, you know, into this thing that she just absolutely can't let go of, it gave the show a driving energy in a sense. I mean, it gives it an automatic kind of plot there, a through line. Will she and Mr. Big ever end up being together? And when it went in that direction, then, I mean, I think that was absolutely the right direction to go in. And I don't think that real life is that way, but these things aren't meant to be real life. And then it became like a uh, like a Jane Austen tale of Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy, where you just they have to get together. So that was the core thing that I disagreed with Darren on, but he was right. Maybe a naive question, but Mr. Big couldn't have been Mr. Big if he was, let's say, a public school science teacher. Absolutely not. But at what point? Was it him or the image of him or the trappings of him? That's a very good question. I can only answer that personally. And I think that for me and for Carrie, Mr. Big really represents what you as a woman can never be. You can't be, you know, the CEO. You can't make millions. You can't be in charge of your own life because you're a woman. And we know how few CEOs there are. So in a sense, Mr. Big is, let's just say it's the ambitious achievement side of of women that society says that you can't be, but you can marry. And if you can marry and you can be with Mr. Big, Maybe you, too, can take on some of those qualities. Maybe you, too, can be Mr. Big. So it's like a psychological thing. And I realized that when my Mr. Big broke up with me that, you know, it is a fantasy and it's a projection. And women project a lot onto men. If women did not project onto men, I hate to tell you, I don't think men would fare very well in the harsh light of day, if we really looked at their actions. But women, you know, we project great qualities on men that they may or may not have. And when my Mr. Big broke up with me, I realized, you know what? I don't want to be with Mr. Big. I want to be Mr. Big. And that's a defining moment in a woman's life. Do you want to be with Mr. Big or do you want to be Mr. Big? And if you want to be Mr. Big, you probably are not going to be with Mr. Big because there's only room for one big in a relationship in general. 
How important was it to you that at least the initial thread in the relationship was the fact that he was somewhat unattainable for her? I think Mr. Big was this idea of this ungettable, unattainable guy. Carrie was somebody who was questioning what is love. And I think we can all relate to like that unattainable person that in a way it's sort of like, I think their whole relationship is sort of like Carrie's road to understanding intimacy because you're not going to have intimacy with the unattainable person. And I think eventually they find their way to each other. But I think that I would say women and men can relate to the idea that, you know, you're not going to have intimacy with the unattainable person. And what does it mean to kind of want that person? And I think Mr. Big, in some ways, you can say, is the great love of Carrie's life and also her big blind spot. Well, one of the disturbing things as many women later on when, you know, I sort of would question, what is this thing that you guys are so mesmerized by with the big Carrie? And a lot of them say because he was so unattainable. And I find that disturbing that that is an attractive quality. You know, you never use that guy that we've all had that's unattainable. I just find that like ridiculous that that is the thing that intrigues them so much. I knew how to write the show in the very last episode of the first season, the one called Oh Come All You Faithful, because it was all about religion and it was when he wouldn't say she was the one and they broke up for the first time. I knew the four strands. I knew, oh, I know how to write this now. There's a sex story, there's a theme story, there's a love story, and then there's a funny parody story. And what do you mean by the theme story? The theme story would be Carrie is not chosen. The religious thing of not being chosen, not being baptized. It was all around a baptism of church. Samantha was going out with a guy with his dick that was too small. That was the comedy thing. And Miranda was going out with a guy who had to shower after sex, a Catholic guy. And I started to understand, oh, this is how you do it. You pick a theme, you break it into four strands, you give one story to each of the ladies. I was wondering if there was a moment in the history of the show where you could really see that things were different after that. For me, it was the finale of the first season where Carrie basically says to Big, I don't need you to tell me today I'm the one, but I need to know like you believe in that. And the fact that he can't really say that. I felt like for me as a woman dating, it was the most a authentic thing to say, but also so brave. It made me want to be Carrie. It made me want to be brave and how I dated. And yeah, so for me, that was sort of the turning point. He told me to have faith, but see, um, I'm kind of losing mine, so, so I need a sign. What, like in those old religious movies, you want a voice from above? Just tell me I'm the one. Here's Kristen Davis. Darren and I used to make jokes about how we might win a Cable Ace Award one day. That was our goal. If we could one day get to the Cable Ace Awards, we would be doing great. They, I don't think they exist anymore, but that was like our biggest, because it just, there was no, HBO only had Gary Shandling, Larry Sanders, uh, was amazing, but cultish. You know, the industry loved it, but it wasn't like a ratings phenomenon or whatever at the time. It didn't have anything else, right? Soprano shot their pilot this right after ours. We came on roughly at the same time. They didn't have any other female shows. You know what I'm saying? We were hopeful, of course. You're always hopeful. But we had no idea. But then once it started showing, people just really started coming up to us in droves on the street, particularly African-American men were the majority of who came up to us. And why was that? Well, we're not sure exactly, except that 
HBO didn't have a lot of original programming at the time, but what they did have was sports. So I guess they had a high African-American male viewership and they found their way to us and they loved us. I had the first moment. When HBO cut together the trailer for the first season, I looked at that trailer and it was funny and shocking and they looked good. And I looked at the trailer, the pace of it, something about it, and I knew this is going to be great. And when I remember the very first Golden Globes, you know, you get up at six in the morning and Darren was in his apartment and I was in my apartment and we're watching the announcements. And that one of the E-ladies said when they were saying like, who, who are you pulling for? What shows? And uh, this girl said, I'm pulling for my sex in the city. And the two guy announcers looked at her like she was crazy. And then they said, best series, sex in the city. And Darren was stunned. And he said, aren't you surprised? And I said, no. I think we earned it. I remember saying to Sarah Jessica Parker at the end of the first season, you know, when we finished filming that last episode, I said, I don't know what's going to happen with the show, but I'm so proud of it. And I feel like we set out to do exactly what we wanted to do. You know, but I think you got to remember HBO, had, they weren't exactly stoking our expectations either. And it wasn't a hit from the beginning. It really took until the second season to really kind of like, I think, take off because people just weren't really like watching HBO to that degree. But I think it kind of snowballed and it was word of mouth and um, it built. But certainly I believed in it. I loved it. I think nobody knew what kind of hit show you could have on HBO. So it wasn't, I think also to go back, it's like my intention doing it at HBO wasn't to have a big commercial hit. It was just to do something like sort of artistic for me. First of all, what I loved about HBO was that their criteria wasn't ratings. It was quality. So that was like something that was really having done all this network television, like Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place and this other show I had just done, Central Park West, before Sex and the City, it was always about ratings, you know? And I always felt like, you know, that's all the networks cared about was ratings. So I was really excited to be at a place where the criteria was quality because they, HBO had their subscribers. So it was a different... Ratings weren't ever discussed at HBO. Darren was used to the networks in a way, you know? So like... First season, I remember one time he took me out to dinner, and I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, what have I done? And it was about the costumes. Because the costumes, that was a stress for me once we got Pat. We didn't have Pat in the pilot, and the costumes were just, like, kind of all over the place. And then we got Pat, who is a genius. But Pat's vision of Charlotte, sometimes I was just like, what? Like, I was just like, I can't wear that. Like, I, I was, it was hard. What's an example? Like one time, Pat had this store um, for a long time that specialized kind of in drag queen clothes. And she would sometimes bring clothes from the store for me to wear. And it was like a cone-shaped bra. Like I a, can't even look. I know. I know. I won't just show anymore. Um, it was like a cone-shaped bra with ruffles on it and like a latex skirt. And I was just like, Pat, I, Charlotte, I don't understand. And she'd be like, you'll look great. And I'll be like, no, I can't, I can't. Like my, it just was hard. So Darren took me out and he said, you know, Kristen, you know, Pat is going to know how to dress you better than you know how to dress you. And I was like, Darren, I, I guess, but it's just stressful. And sometimes I just feel like it's not true to the character. It's not just so much that I don't feel comfortable because sometimes it was that, like, physically I felt uncomfortable and like I didn't look good or what you know what I'm saying I didn't feel confident in the clothes but also I just felt like Charlotte 
wouldn't wear that. She just wouldn't wear that. But Pat thought outside the box, which is why Pat is a genius and why Pat dresses people on television shows unlike anybody else because she does not think in the box. But sometimes I just had to say no, and Pat really did not like that. So um, I tried after that, after Darren told me that Pat was going to make me look better than I made myself. Look, I tried. I really tried. Stylist, fashion designer, and innovative customer Patricia Field has been a force in the business for over 40 years, having worked with Sarah Jessica Parker on the 1995 movie Miami Rhapsody throughout the Sex and the City series and on both the spinoff movies. Nominated for an Academy Award for her work on 2006's The Devil Wears Prada, Field was nominated five times for Emmys in the category of Outstanding Costumes for a TV Series. She won in 2002. Field's work dates back to the 1970s, when many credit her with inventing women's modern leggings. In 2016, Field sold her retail operations and founded Art Fashion, becoming curator of a visual arts enterprise which creates hand-painted, one-of-a-kind articles of clothing. I had never met Darren before, and as it seemed that people, whoever, uh, weren't happy with the wardrobe and the pilot, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker suggested that Darren meet me because, you know, she kind of suggested me for the position. I enjoyed working with her on Miami Rhapsody. And, of course, you know, one positive experience leads to another. Well, actually, I spoke with Darren and asked him to give me his synopsis of each of the characters, you know, as he saw them. And he did... But the one that was, like, not as clear, it was funny, was Sarah Jessica Parker. She was, I guess, I'm trying to remember the word, but I think it was eclectic (laughs) as a description of her. Of course, she had the leading role, but she, in addition, she was, you know, a very fashion girl. She loved fashion. She knew fashion. And so from that point of view... She was great for the role. It was very collaborative between uh, her and me. And, you know, it's like I always compare it to, you know, if you're playing tennis, you need somebody who is on your level so that you could have a good game. So the pilot had been shot, but the credits hadn't been. And, I mean, it's such an iconic kind of piece of clothing at this point. What drove you to that? The tutu was five bucks. Did you just say that the tutu was $5? Did you get it in a thrift shop? I got it in a showroom. <laughs> I can't remember the showroom, but I was there at the showroom <laughs> looking at their collection, and I noticed a basket on the floor with a sign, $5. And I looked, <laughs> and I found it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It may have been the absolute steal of fashion history. That's because it was original. I was like, what the hell is that and why? But that was the first of many discussions like that with Pat about wardrobe. But I (laughs) wisely always sort of like was persuaded to go along with him, even if I never quite understood it. I had several positive points that led me to making that selection. And that was having worked with Sarah Jessica before I realized I knew that she was graceful. She was ballet trained. I think mentally she would identify with that skirt, and I knew that she could carry it off. And uh, for me, it was a vote yes. The main other point being that it was unusual, but at the same time, classic. It was classic, but with an unusual application. And I 
explained to Darren that, you know, if the show's a success, the originality of this idea would carry the opening credits right through the entire seasons, each season, because it wasn't a fashion item from any particular year. It was original, made up, customized for my actress, and um, that's the whole reason why. I remember a number of different discussions with Pat and Sarah sometimes where they'd be showing me something and I'd be like, what? And, you know, I remember even talking to Michael about it once, like when there was a, a scene where Carrie was wearing like a dirindle to a picnic in Central Park, you know, basically dressed like Heidi. And I hadn't seen it until it was already shot. And I was like, why is she wearing that? And Pat's like, well, she was going on a picnic. And I just thought, well, who's going to pay attention to the dialogue? There's going to be like looking at that outfit. And I think there were many instances of that on the show. But I think a big part of the success of the show is people love to look at the wardrobe. Did you have to sometimes balance what the characters in the show were doing in terms of their financial abilities with some of the outfits that you brought on? Because sometimes, you know, you didn't want the audience continually thinking, wait, how could she afford that? Or did you just suspend that kind of reality and just kind of went Yes, I did. I suspended the reality because for me, I never really got into what the price tag was. You know, my style goes from soup to nuts. And the way I view fashion is eclectic. And I like very much mixing different ideas, different price ranges, different color combinations. I think that's what contributes to the reality. I'm there to support the actor. I'm not there to make them uncomfortable in any way because they're in front of the camera playing the character. And they have to feel comfortable. They have to believe in what they're wearing. You know, so it's not my role to dictate anything but to get to know the actor and to work with them i tried to just stay out of the way if if that makes any sense (laughs) because you know it was about fashion it was about what women are concerned with their looks and uh i tried to just do my part and then escape into the ether what was it like being the male character surrounded by four very distinct, strong female characters? Because, you know, usually it's a bunch of guys and the token woman, and you had the reverse. Yeah, but don't forget, I was just a part of her life, and the biggest part of her life in the show were those girls. So I'd go in and do my job, and I wouldn't think much about it. It took a little bit longer because, you know, makeup and hair and all that stuff is different. You know, I'd literally, on a side note, like on Law & Order, I'd fall out of bed and get into the makeup chair with my hair in 50 different directions, and and it would take about two minutes, and then we'd be on shooting, and, you know, I would comb my hair with a towel. (laughs) Once again, Sex and the City creator... Darren Starr. I used to think at the beginning of doing the show that, like, why am I the person doing Sex in the City? Why am I doing a show about, you know, women, about sexual relationships from this female point of view? But I think, first of all, that's what writers do. They sort of put themselves in the shoes of other characters and in the mindset of other characters. And I have a lot of empathy for my female friends. And I think I'm able, sometimes you're able to see the humor in somebody else's situation when you're not quite as close to it and in it. So, first of all, I think men and women aren't as They're different, but we're all people. And I think that it really is just like, you know, it's a leap of imagination. It's really sort of what you're meant to do as a writer. You know, I think men can write women the same way women can write men. And we had women in the room, you know, in the writer's room, 
Michael and I were not there inventing the wheel all by ourselves, although we certainly did most of the heavy lifting together the first season. I'm really amused by women, and I love writing female characters. I feel like they're emotional, and they say what's on their mind, and we just decided that, you know what, Samantha was going to be as absolutely body and sexual as she wanted to be, and sort of as blue as we could possibly make her. And I've known all these women. You know, I can point to all these women, and I'm sure, you know, probably everybody has these women in their lives that they can say, oh my God, I know that woman who talks about sex and has zero shame about it, you know? And I know the woman who is who is just career-driven and uptight and insecure, and I know the woman who is like just feeling like she wants to play by the rules and just is constantly getting screwed by it. But beyond that, we had really great women on staff, and we talked about our own personal stories at length. And I always felt like you could not do a show about four men talking about women in the way that you could turn it on its head and do a show about four women talking frankly about men because you just haven't hadn't seen it before. So some of it, honestly, it's like, you know, a leap of imagination and we just sort of got it right. Next on Origins Sex in the City, Episode 2, the stars, the writers, and others responsible for the surprise hit talk about testing the waters of sexual candor. Yes, it's HBO, but how far could they go? How much frankness did the audience demand? After all, now they were paying. Thanks, as always, to Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, Nick Friedman, Lauren Cohen, Pam Kramer, Josephina Francis, and the rest of the team at Cadence 13. And specifically to my main man, Chris Basil, who is always in the trenches with me, and our younger cohort, Terrence Malingone. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening to us in your homes, cars, and through your headphones. We're doing this for you. So if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, please feel free to hit me up at james at jamesandrewmiller.com. Onward to episode two. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Cheers. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker, a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.